Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. We are live uh, from uh, England. Uh, so Tom is joining us uh, from north of England. I'm joining from London and we are so excited to have you here with us this evening. We have a really exciting conversation about the future of careers in design. And I have an amazing guest joining me this evening. Just a couple of words before we start. Um, I'm Anna Budakova. I'm a co-founder and CEO at Meander, which is a mentorship platform helping people to grow in their careers. We have amazing mentors on the platform from uh, Google, Facebook, Intercom, Miro, and many other amazing companies, uh, which are helping people to define their next steps and truly understand uh, how they could develop their skills. And in this series of interviews, we are talking to amazing thought leaders, experts in their field to better understand how the future of careers would evolve and what we could do to adjust and to stay relevant in this fast-changing fast world. So today, uh, we are focusing on the future of careers in design, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Tom Ringer, uh, Design Director at Intercom, who will actually shed some uh, insights on the future of careers in design. So Tom led um, design team at Huddle, uh, which is a sports technology market leader, and now he leads two business units at Intercom. So he will share a bit more uh, about his career. But first of all, welcome, Tom. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for inviting me to chat with you today. Awesome. Great to have you. And welcome to everybody uh, tuning in. Uh, please share in comments uh, your profession, your job title. It's always really interesting to see who is listening uh, so that we could adjust the content of our conversation. So say hello and just share um, your job title with us. Awesome. So Tom, uh, just to kick us off, uh, maybe you could share a bit more about your career path so far, maybe like key milestones, key highlights of your career journey. Yeah, so um, I'll try and give you the, the 30 second elevator pitch on, on this so <laughs> far. So as you said, I currently design across two different business units at Intercom, and I've been here for about 15 months now. So I joined August last year. Um, and Intercom's an AI-first customer service platform. It's used by thousands of companies around the world. Um, Anna used to work there as well, so I'm sure I'm telling you something you know here, but it's uh, for everything from kind of two, three, four-person startups all the way through to huge organizations like Microsoft or Meta and Atlassian. And the two business units I work on are Proactive Support and our growth team. So Proactive Support uh, build tools that help our customers help their customers get ahead of problems they might have. So think about things like uh, tool tips, checklists, product tours, banners, that type of thing. And then the growth group helps uh, prospects to evaluate Intercom and to get activated up and running with the tool and customers to get more from the tool. Uh, and then, yeah, before that, I uh, worked at a sports tech company called Huddle. Um, I was there for a very long time in a single company. I was there nearly eight years and they were pretty small when I joined and then they were pretty big when I left and uh, <laughs> I got to work on a, a ton of different things and uh, Huddles um, provides kind of hardware and software for sports teams of every level all the way through from like grassroots football in our country the type of thing you might see in a park at a weekend through to every single Premier League team every NBA team a lot of American football teams like truly the, the pinnacle of elite sport and um, I got to, like I said I got to work on a lot of different things but um, probably one of the the 
the biggest achievements in my career is working on bringing a new hardware and software product to market, uh, Huddle Focus, which is an AI-driven uh, camera system that mm. allowed teams of every level to get broadcast level footage um, and to, for analysis, but also to kind of, kind of like promote their team and online and provide live streaming services. And um, yeah, I started as an IC designer there. I joined um, just working on a team and then I grew through to being a manager and a leader and a, and a director in the end. And uh, that gave me the opportunity to grow a team from scratch and to build that team internationally. I think at one point I had a report in every time zone from the West Coast all the way to Central Europe. And uh, <laughs> so that team was like truly international. I got to hire some new disciplines as well. So we brought industrial design into the company and content design. And um, before that, I worked historically in agencies and um, I did a degree in web and multimedia, which was kind of like quite an emerging degree back then, like 10, 15 <laughs> years ago. And that was part computing, part graphic design. So like traditional design principles, but part computing, I guess the two melded together to become what you would call like UX or UI design and built a lot of websites and a lot of email templates back then in, in the day. And uh, now that's kind of given me a, a footing to what I do today. And I, I work remotely, as Anna said, I, uh, I live in the north of England, about an hour north of Liverpool and, and and our work kind of west of Manchester and uh, mm -hmm. I've worked remote for nearly 10 years like I, I oh, wasn't wow. a yeah I wasn't a remote person a the pandemic. yeah I was a pioneer <laughs> I'm one of the odd people that was working at home a decade ago and um, I always have and I guess I still will travel significantly to spend time in offices with uh, people I work with or to be on site with customers so I guess I'm kind of hybrid with a very long commute um, but yeah that's that's kind of me in a nutshell awesome uh, and just wanted to say welcome to all listeners. So I think we have a nice split between product managers and designers uh, listening to, uh, to this broadcast. And that's actually a perfect leeway to my next question. So I think right now there are a lot of conversations happening about the role of a designer, because I think many companies still think about designers as you know, people responsible for beautiful design, for user experience. But I think there is also a shift happening where some companies are starting to think about designers more uh, like product managers. So a lot of responsibilities are being shared with what's been historically in the realm of product managers. So for you personally, how do you define a role of a product designer? I think it's a great question. I think Brian Chesky of Airbnb recently said something like uh, designs more than a department. It's a, w a way of thinking, and I, I guess I couldn't agree more with that. And um, design ultimately is a competitive competitive advantage. Like great design equals great business. And um, to make that successful, though, design has to be a core part of, of the strategy and strategic thinking within a company. Um, the role of a designer, I guess, is to bring deep understanding of the customer and to be able to show what the solution will do to transform that customer's experience and therefore transform the business in a in a direction. And to do that, though, they have to speak the language of the business. And historically, designers have been fairly poor at that. Like they aren't able to converse in the, in the language that PMs are able to or a language that would be understood by stakeholders in a business. And I think it's they can't go on any longer. I guess designers okay. need to be able to... Uh, get away from focusing purely on desirability. If you think of the human-centered design, like Venn diagram, you can't just focus on desirability. You've really got to stretch into viability. And I guess mm. in counter to that, PMs can't just focus on viability. They have to stretch into desirability. That's where the overlap begins. And the um, 
I think one of the first managers I ever had uh, at Huddle was called Kyle Murphy, and he he had a phrase that everybody's a designer. And I guess at first I I took that as diminishing the role of design, but uh, I think you have to kind of go one step deeper than that. It's it's not meaning everybody should be in Figma crafting the the interface. It, it's more <laughs> meaning like everybody should think like a designer and mm. have the experience like of a customer at the forefront of every decision they make. And that's not just PMs, like engineers should really think about creative problem solving and think about the experience, not just writing code that ticks off a ticket in JIRA. Makes sense. I, what I'm hearing you saying is that a lot of designers uh, needs to think more about the business and yeah. how they affect the business. How do you feel it's affecting the expectations from designers, like in terms of skill set, in terms of behaviors? How do you see that changing? And especially with, um, uh, you know, those changes in AI, uh, yeah. like so many tools becoming available to designers uh, and yeah, essentially more focus on the business side. Yeah, I guess what's got us here isn't going to get us there anymore. Um, like. <laughs> we're standing on the precipice of the, a new future with AI. Like, um, I think AI will have a generational shift in the world, not not just in design and in tech, and probably as much as the internet did uh, as a whole, mm -hmm. we're possibly at the, the, the starting point of a, a completely new kind of revolution. And I'm so excited about AI. I guess I've not been as excited about anything since I got my first desktop computer and got access to the internet. And I was, my mind was blown like by that. And my mind keeps getting blown by the things that AI can do. You see like the new releases on, on top of ChatGPT and it is mind blowing on a weekly basis. Um, so the emergence of AI is likely going to change the role of a designer, but it's probably also going to change the role of a PM and an engineer and a, and a researcher at the same time. But I don't think we should fear that. We, we need to embrace it. It's probably going to make some of the craft elements quite a lot quicker and simpler and uh, more efficient and more accessible to other disciplines in the same way that like co-pilot for writing code is probably going to make code writing a lot more accessible for the people than not just people with computer science degrees. Uh, but that will also give like designers more capacity because they're mm. not going to be stuck in Figma the whole time. They're not enslaved to creating these like ginormous Figma files full of every single edge case and every kind of possibility worked out. Um, it's going to allow them to like broaden their aperture and widen the skill set and expand into what a role of a designer should be today. And I think it's more about kind of reskilling and extending your skills rather than kind of letting go of your skills. Um, I don't mm -hmm. think it's going to immediately replace a product designer. Um, I, I saw a post from Jacob Nielsen at the weekend that said 19% of UX advice uh, from AI was useless and like over 10% was actually harmful in the end. It was actually have a negative experience. So I don't think we're totally replaced yet, but um, we, I think a designer will become irrelevant if they're not able to embrace the technology and to utilize mm -hmm. it to become more effective in the role. That's where people will probably be left by the wayside. Yeah, I think like you remember like 10 years ago, people used to write uh, in skills Microsoft Word yeah. emails, this kind of stuff. So now I yeah. think AI would, you know, become ubiquitous and <laughs> just yeah. a common thing for everybody to know. And how do you think it will affect the expectations from designers? Like in terms of who we hire, in terms of who we promote, uh, what kind of expectations uh, will form uh, in this new reality? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if I was going to specialize in something as a new starter, I'd specialize in 
uh, conversational design or like the application of AI or ML in, in design. I think that's probably, I think it's pretty clear that's going to be around for a decade more or so. And it's going to be at the, the basis of everything that we do going forward. Um, I think there's a, a probably a broader expectation around problem solving and less on crafting great interfaces. There's It's going to be less around the execution and more around the problem solving and the thinking around problem solving and collaboration and being able to move fast and to test a hypothesis quickly. Um, I, I imagine the focus will shift more towards that. Nice. Awesome. I think you mentioned before uh, this new focus on business uh, for designers. And I feel like in the past, uh, it's been always a tension between the product manager and a designer, like designers being those guardians of high quality experience and PMs wanting to push something to production very quickly. Yeah. So how do you see this evolving and how do you see this relationship changing in the future? I mean, I should probably start by saying I actually love that tension. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's healthy and uh, it makes for better product in the long run. And some of the best workplace relationships I've ever had have been with PMs that I've had that tension with, like battling it out and respectfully putting your own perspective uh, on the table to be poked and prodded. And that's the bit that excites me and gets me kind of up in the morning and wanting to work in tech and work in product. And um, But I do think if you're building product properly, you should be shipping quickly. And that should be at the forefront of every designer and every PM's sentiments. And the tension shouldn't really lie there. I think the tension comes more to when you're shipping something that is a test or an, an MVP. I don't really like the MVP term, but like an MVP. And then you don't come back to perfect that experience. You leave broken windows in the product. I think that's where the tension comes in. Um, but the PM and the designer have to come together to speak each other's language at that point. Like it's... Um, it's no longer okay for a designer to just come to the table and try and advocate for continual investment in that experience. Um, I often use like a rubric with my teams that um, if a product team in a tech company costs about a million dollars a year to run and like give or take a few tens of thousands either way, depending on the seniority and the tech company, if you actually divide that down into a two week sprint, that's 40K. Like, would you spend 40K investing in working on that for another sprint? Like, do you think you're going to get the return on investment? And it's it's a way of framing it that really gets people to think about ROI and think about the business. If that was your 40K, would you spend it in that way? Oh, that's such a great tactic. I'm going to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. Uh, but how do you feel about the... Um, so thinking about this trade-off between the quality and shipping quickly, yeah. how do you, as a designer, find the you know right time to stop pushing for quality and you know decide to ship the feature? How do you find this balance between the quality of experience and just trying to learn as quickly as possible? Yeah, well, I would hope it's been shipped already and it's in the hands of customers because I don't think you can truly define what quality is unless it's being used. I think mm. if you try and just define it in a dock somewhere, then you're not really getting a true sense of how that product will be used. Now, from my experience, every single thing that you can hypothesize in in advance, will there'll be some elements that won't be true. And that there'll be some elements where you're surprised when that product's in the hands of customers. And your definition of quality might not be 100% accurate until it starts to be being used. And like what is just enough is hard to pick in advance before it starts to being used. I love it. A quality does not exist until the product is not used. 
yeah like it's good. just it's, it's just so subjective until it's in the hands of of customers that makes a lot of sense uh, let's actually talk about your people management career yeah. because I feel like a lot of people want to pursue management career, but uh, um, as well, many struggle to transition. Yeah. So what's been your path to transition to people management? Especially, I think it's especially interesting given that you did this transition in one company. So you grew from an IT to yeah. a manager. How did that happen for you? Yeah, I guess my first steps into what you call management happened in in agencies, but it wasn't management as we talk about today in in a tech company. It was really heavily focused on being a gate to work quality. Like a, so you, anyone's worked in an agency with like a creative director, they sign the work like physically in terms of proof work. They sign the work to say it's good enough to ship. But it happened very similarly for kind of digital work at the time. You'd be a gatekeeper for, for the quality of that work and. Uh, stri I guess striving for the quality part exists today in, in mm -hmm. what I would call like management and leadership, but there was very little focus on people management then and coaching individuals and trying to grow people to, to be kind of better in their career and to achieve their own goals. And uh, when I moved to Huddle, like product side as an IC, I had some really great managers and um, they acted more as like coaches and less as overseers of work. And they I guess I quickly knew that's what I wanted to do. When you've seen something good and you've been on the receiving end of great management, it's very um, it's very easy to realize that you want to be that person yourself and emulate those people. And uh, Huddle was scaling really fast at that time. So uh, hiring a lot of people, like there was a new hire class with 15, 20 people every single Monday. It was like rapid uh, onboarding of new people and they needed a lot of managers. So they had a new manager academy to help ICs transition from being and I see into a manager and uh, this was great. Uh, I still lean on a lot of the principles that I learned in that um, academy today. And I guess I was super fortunate to get exposed to that. And it was exposure to founders and board members. And we read a lot of books together and a lot of things around like the company culture and principles around management. And yeah, I read a lot of books, um, a lot of tech company based books, things like uh, mm -hmm. No Rules Rules, the Netflix culture book. And um a uh, book by Ben Horowitz uh, on like building hard, hard things is building hard or something like that. Um, yeah. I also read a lot of like great leadership books, like 80-20 principle and seven habits of effective people. I should probably like write a, a, a list of books I've read. It's a lot of books, uh, but I also like just jumped in at the deep end. And I feel like you learn most, I guess, like product, you get it in the hands of customers. You learn the most when you're trying to be a manager and starting small. I think I started with a single report and uh, quite a junior report and then grew and ended up um, more kind of senior staff level or principal level reports and then managers and managers of managers. And yeah, I guess I started small and uh, you don't try and boil the ocean in one go. You <laughs> start small and then build on that. Yeah. Uh, what's been most difficult in this transition for you? Uh, it's a really great question like the best uh it's like a sports analogy the best players don't always make the best managers mm. they, uh, I struggled um at the start like I struggled um with not being a doer anymore I guess my first management was kind of hybrid I did management and then IC work so I was still on the tools and still involved and heavily able to like shape the work but as I started to move away from that I found it hard to let go especially because I was so invested in the product. I've been there such a long time and I'd help kind of birth that product from the start. I found it really difficult to, to step out and to let go there. And um, 
I think also I struggled to embrace pluralism, like the, the idea that something could be achieved in multiple ways and not just mm-hmm. my way. Like I, again, I guess I really struggled with that at times, but um, I think it's a learning experience. Like I was probably a horrible manager like 10, 12, <laughs> 15 years ago, like a horror. I apologize to anybody who was managed by me 15 years ago. I was probably terrible, but like I was learning a new skill as they were learning new skills as well in their career. And uh, every, like, everybody's still learning today I'm definitely not the finished kind of article I'm I wouldn't ever profess to be like the best manager on the planet but um I've got a growth mindset and I'm willing to keep learning and uh being exposed to people and uh, I I have a mentor of my own that I work with and uh, I've worked with professional coaches as well in the past I've just finished the course with Julia Whitney um who's going to speak at leading design in a few weeks she's a specialist and a leadership coach I worked with Kat Watkins for a while as well as like a, a leadership coach he was VP of design at BuzzFeed and Etsy and I think everybody's got a ton to learn from everybody else in the industry so just like keep keep going and keep learning that's amazing and as a founder of a mentorship platform I could not agree more <laughs> yeah uh yeah I think uh I think that's really really uh great insight that many people who transition into management actually struggle with delegation and uh, really don't know how to extend themselves through their team. What helped you on this journey? Like, how did you realize that you now need to delegate and what helped you to let go? Yeah, I mean, you don't scale as an individual. It's only one of you, like you can't scale, but you have to at some point embrace the idea of leverage leadership and being able to empower your team and enable them to do great work because um, you're not a force multiplier on your own. You only can only go so far, and like there was the demand outweighed the supply. I guess at some point, and uh, it forced me to to let go more and to to step back. And I think gr- having a great manager myself and helping me coach like coach me in that really helped. Um, like I said Tim, having external mentorship as well really helped. Like um, just being super transparent that I was working on this myself, and it wasn't something I was naturally good at and uh, I had to work through this I get another sport I feel like I'm just going to do sports analogies but like some mm-hmm. players are naturally talented I don't consider myself one of those people like I feel like I have to keep learning and really try hard to keep um growing because it doesn't just come naturally mm-hmm. awesome I love it what would you recommend to a beginner design leader like what would be the main principles or tactics you would recommend to learn as a as a first stage? Uh, just do it. Like don't be afraid. <laughs> like do do it if you get the opportunity. Run headfirst at it. I think it's one of the most rewarding things that you can do in your career. Like helping others. Um, I I'm super passionate about helping others, both through like product in terms of like solving problems for real people, but also through helping individuals like achieve their own. Uh, career goals there's nothing I like more than like celebrating my team and celebrating great successes that they've had because uh, I feel like I've played a very small part in helping enable them to do that and to to clear that up I would say start small like if you get the opportunity to mentor a peer that's at the same level as you or in the same area as you working in the same product area as you jump in and do that offer to do that mentorship for for free and to to just for your own experience and growing I think that's a great opportunity identify people who are wanting to be in the position you're in today like there's everybody whatever position you're in I'm sure there's a million people out there who would love to be in that position so if you're 
just a mid-weight designer starting there's a ton of people in education still would love to have that role like try and partner up with those people and to help them understand how you got to where you are today and that that mentorship will will allow you to hone your skills to for when you become a manager awesome yeah 100% resonate with this advice yeah um I think many ITs, especially the ones who do deep work, like designers, engineers, sometimes really miss, you know, the, the deep work when they become managers because managers are on the manager schedule. They yeah. are running from a meeting to a meeting. Uh, they are spending their time in conversations and they're not doing much, uh, you know, uh, the actual deep work uh, is designs anymore. What would what would what would what do you recommend? What's been your experience, and what would you recommend to folks who are afraid to make this transition because they might miss, you know, IT work? Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I miss it. I definitely miss it. I think everybody would be a liar if they didn't miss it. But I guess I think of my role now as designing the design team. There's like mm. problems in in uh, in org structures and strategy and enablement and clarity in uh, in their roles. My job is to solve those problems. So I'm still solving problems for real people at heart. Just the context is different uh, that I'm doing that. I still get to, uh, I just signed up today to a pair design rotor with uh, ICs on my team. I still get to do <laughs> that type of stuff. Like I um, get the opportunity to do that. Uh, every once in a while, there'll be a need for people to swarm on a problem and that uh, that might be in a crit session or it might just be like a, a larger problem that we need multiple designers on that's just, you're still going to get an opportunity to get close to the work in that sense but um i find the helping people more uh, more rewarding necessary than even just doing the work so i think i've found where i like my happy place i guess of where i want to be <laughs> and i guess like um that that was through chance that i found my 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 place there but I I would recommend it to anybody if it feels like an area that's like a passion of yours I would would definitely go into it and not worry too much about coming off the tools nice so your audience is your reports now <laughs> yeah I designed the design team and this I played around in fig jam this morning with an org chart like there's still like craft elements to it and there's a part of me that's probably spent half an hour too long in there perfecting it and making it look beautiful and not holding my own advice of shipping it early and uh, getting it out there to see. But um, <laughs> there's still elements of, of doing that type of thing and there's still a problem to be solved there. Totally. I think right now uh, there is a trend uh, for chief design officers uh, joining the company, joining the C-level uh, suit. What are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you see this role evolving, and what kind of companies usually require such a role? Yeah, it's a great question. It is it, it is an emerging role. It's not that common yet. I would say it's um, it probably is the natural progression of design becoming an equal partner in the three-legged stool with like product and engineering. Um, should all organisations have a CDO? Probably not. Um, should sub? Probably, and would the product be better as a result of it? Pro probably, again, yeah. Um, I think there's probably probably two vectors as to to the influence as to why that should exist, like the scale of the company. Just if you have so many designers, at some point, you have to have levels of management in between to make that work. Just like people, process, resourcing, tooling, education. At some point, you just have to have various levels of 
uh, management in that structure. Maybe you've got very kind of varying disciplines. You've got content, product, marketing design, brand design, industrial design. Again, you need kind of roll up management tiers. Maybe that's where a CDO needs to exist. But probably the more interesting one is um, when you're a smaller company that's in a market that's like highly competitive that's kind of where the interesting one lies like you may not have a large design team but um you've got a market where experience is the differentiating factor like Mm. it's the way that that company wins uh or there are like a clear leader in an emerging technology maybe like open ai would be a good example there like it like should open ai have a chief design officer potentially like a whether they're needing to kind of reinvent the future of the company on a almost like weekly, monthly basis. Having like a key strategic partner to the CPO and the CTO at that point makes total sense to me that somebody that's able to play that role and to craft that vision and to be able to be that strategic partner, but also to like set the quality bar across the entire company, like uphold what quality looks like at, at a high level. If if the, the experience is a differentiating factor, the quality has to be at like the utmost level and having that person that's able to have the 10,000 foot view over the entire org and, and set the bar for quality is important too. Hmm. So the regular tries that um, a CDO uh, would be responsible for quality and its definition on the company level, essentially. Yeah, I think that is one of the things that they'd be responsible for. Um, I think they, they would be the person that has like the voice of the customer most and understanding hmm. what quality means to that customer and understanding how quality is a either like a driver for business value or like a differentiating factor against one tool versus the other like intercom really heavily value product quality uh, as a as a tool that is a differentiating factor for the company and um i guess there's a great role there that intercom has designed all the way up to the highest levels in the company like some of the founders were designers and um like emmett who i report to a vp of design like plays a like a, a very high executive role in the company. Makes sense. I think you've been talking a lot about quality. You also mentioned trust uh, yeah. in the conversation. And I think to many business owners and founders, this feels very subjective. And we've been talking a lot about companies like Intercom, uh, which already uh, understands the value of design. But what would you do if you were a designer in a company uh, which actually doesn't have this mindset yet. How would you explain the value of investing into quality, into craft, which might seem subjective? Yeah, at some level, it is subjective. Um, at another level, there is direct correlation between the impact of an experience and like the outcome. I work in a growth team. That that correlation couldn't be any stronger in, in a growth mm-hmm. team. You make a experience change and then you watch for the metric to change on a like a two-week, three-week, four-week basis. And that, that direct <laughs> correlation is so visceral for people to see. And uh, that gets a lot of designers excited. I think finding a way to have direct connection between the work that you're doing and then the metrics that you've driven that are important to the business uh, is the way to advocate for more investment in the work that you're doing. You've got to, I guess, have a win sheet of things that you've done in the past that have really impacted metrics that those stakeholders care about. Because that's part of the designer showing up and talking the language of the business. If you just beat the drum that, oh, we need to invest in this, we need a design system. What's the design system we're going to do? There's two levers in business, right? Like you either sell more product or you make it cheaper to make product. Mm. Like the design system is probably going to make it cheaper to make product because 
it's a one-to-many relationship for you design one thing and you're able to use it in many places so to connect the thing the dots together like and talk in the language of the business like you want to invest in a design system because you want to make the design team more efficient and this is a hypothesis around what that efficiency could look like and what the savings look like you've got to be able to talk the language awesome so i think we should add an analytical skill to at least the expectations yeah. from designers as well <laughs> yeah definitely like a data science background would be helpful <laughs> nice i think uh one um uh question that i also wanted to discuss is how you articulate the value of visionary work or if there is any case for it as well because essentially um i think when we are talking about gross design or when we are talking about the existing products you can find the connection between the design work and the metrics. But I think usually, not usually, but sometimes designers actually act as visionaries where they recreate the product. They think how else they could approach the product. How do you build a case for that in, in situations where you don't have any metrics yet? Um, how do you explain the value of such work? Yeah, I think. A vision defines the future state, like it defines what success looks like for the business. So it can hypothesize on metrics that it thinks it will move for the business or markets it's able to attain or approach at that point. Like um, I think the value is, it's very much like dependent on the moment in time that you're in. Like, uh, do you think there's like a, a great opportunity to change the, like a, have a big step change in, in the way that the product is delivered to, to customers or a big step change in the market? Is there a technology change? I think like AI was a big opportunity for, for Intercom to really think about um, like a vision for the future of what an AI-centric customer support platform looks like. I think that's a mode where you're not necessarily going to have real tangible metrics that you think that will drive but you know there's an opportunity in the market to change the face of that market can altogether and i think that's a, a great moment in time for a vision to exist super interesting and is it, is it usually driven by designers or by some other function i think it should be dri uh, driven by everybody like you it's, mm. it's going back to that hcd like venn diagram a vision is no good if it's just the desirability. It has to be viable and it has to be feasible at the same time. Like, have we got the technology to deliver it? Like, is, is it going to produce like a product that's sellable in the market at the right price and that's attractive to customers? And then is that possible? What's the experience look like? Like, what's the tangible way that that product would come to life? All three have to exist. And that means the triad has to like collaborate together to be able to deliver that. Awesome. I have one last question for you, but I uh, just wanted to um, mention to our audience that we'll then transition into Q&A. So please share your questions in, uh, in the comments. Uh, we'll take a look at them and we'll try to cover as many as we can. Uh, so first, <laughs> first come, first serve. Uh, please share your questions about product design and anything you'd like to ask um, Tom. So I. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the design thinking and design culture, and obviously Intercom is known for its design-driven culture. If you were to start your own company, what kind of principles or approaches you would use to build a design mindset in the company? What kind of processes or tactics you would adopt to help others in the company, like other functions, engineers, product managers, to 
better understand how to adopt this kind of thinking. Yeah, so uh, Intercom has product principles and it has design principles. There's a really great blog post by Des Trainer, one of the founders of Intercom on the Intercom blog. If you Google principles and Intercom, you'll find it really easy. But the design principles are, and I'm not, I'm not going to lie, I'm going to read these because I can't remember them verbatim, but uh, <laughs> connected modular systems, opinionated by default, flexible under the hood, follow fundamentals, make it feel personal, and what you ship is what matters. And the simple answer is, I guess I'd steal every single one of those if I could. Like, <laughs> I, they all resonate really well. And, and that's probably part of the reason why I joined Intercom, because uh, the product principles and the design principles resonated with me uh, in advance. And I think Intercom sees the experience as a differentiating factor over its competitors. Yeah. Big competitors like Zendesk, Intercom sees the experience for uh, both its customers that we call our teammates who use the product, like the back end of the product as a differentiating factor, but also like the their end customer centered. So the messenger, we see our messenger is the best in market messenger and we continually invest in that product to be the best in market. And we think that is a differentiating factor to, for that experience that it offers end users at the same time. Um, I guess Intercom truly embodies the notion of great design equals great business. Um, Every single person is a craftsperson at Intercom, um, not just the designers, like uh, the PMs, the engineers, go-to-market teams, sales support, like Anna knows this personally, like every single yeah. one sweat, sweats the details, like the really minute details that add that extra one, two, three percent to the experience. And I guess it's the tireless pursuit of excellence at, all, at every touch point and every moment in the product. And I would... Uh, I would try and steal that. And that comes like <laughs> right from the top down, like um, Owen and Des and uh, Kieran, who are some of the founders who are still involved and right the way through to Paul Adams as the chief product officer and Emmett, who I report to, but also like bottoms up. Every single person who's hired is consciously hired with like uh, that kind of mindset. And it, it's looked for in the interview process and our values are part of our interview process and our product principles and design principles are looked for in the, in the when reviewing portfolios and, looking for people who can embody that from the ground up so it's it's kind of bi-directional um mm -hmm. the whole company has that at, at its heart awesome yeah i, I really like those, that. yeah i really like those uh, principles that you mentioned that uh you should check for those values when you hire people but also it should be coming from the top like uh, managers should be role models uh for those values for those principles yeah and, and yeah i it is truly embodied all the way from like Owen, who's the CEO, all the way down. Like it, it, you can see that at every level at, at various like elevations and various like um, applications, I guess, like not just crafting like an experience, but like crafting like a, a policy or a process throughout the company. The same kind of principles are applied to those internal processes as they are to the product development itself. Nice. Yeah, I remember when I worked at Intercom, everybody had to work in support. Uh, for yeah. some time. I'm not sure if it's still the case. So we're all doing it this week, actually. Right. This is our, so Intercom works in cycles, six-week cycles, and that's two a quarter, but it doesn't add up perfectly. So that we have a wiggle week in the middle mm -hmm. and we're all kind of jumping into the inbox and helping with support this week. It's it's the best learning experience. You have I did that huddle as well. We had something called non-support support where you had to get on the phones. That's an even scarier experience because you're actually <laughs> live on a call with people and uh, you can't delay very easily, but uh, in the inbox, thankfully, you can delay while you're kind of scurrying around to research the answers to the problem. Yeah, no, I think that's truly amazing. It's one of the principles to, you know, learn your, uh, know your user. 
when you are uh, creating products. And we actually installed this tactic for Meander as well. So the whole team is um, on support uh, all the time. Awesome. Uh, so that's all my questions. And we have some questions coming in from our listeners. Uh, so I'll take a look at them right now. And we'll start the Q&A. Right. So we have a question about AI tools for designers. Can you recommend any AI tools that designers should know to future-proof their careers? Uh, I guess um, I'm probably not the best person to answer this because I'm not as close to the work in general, but um, I use ChatGPT to help me form documents. Uh, I use a tool inside Google Docs to help kind of flesh out um, like a framework for a document as a whole. Um, mid, I like playing with Midjourney a lot. Um, mm -hmm. You can get some really cool results from Midjourney. One of our designers is using Midjourney to help redesign our website at the moment. So we're going to use illustrators to produce a lot of the artwork that's on the website, but he's using Midjourney as kind of like a stopgap to help visualize what it could look like. And then using illustrators to, to kind of produce the final artwork to go on there. So yeah, there's a lot of tools out there. I would imagine the tools are changing on a weekly basis as well. There's some crazy new tools. <laughs> that is true. I feel like every day on product hunt, you would see a lot of new AI new. tools. <laughs> yeah. And it's the time to market is mind blowing that people are able to bring these products to life with two or three person teams in such a short period of time. And I guess that's like applying AI to help develop tools to utilize AI, like uh, using Copilot to write code and, and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. A question from Alona. Uh, what can give the best boost in a product design career? It's a great question. Uh, what's the best boost? Um, so I think you can um, you can teach tools and you can teach um, process, but you can't really teach or accelerate taste and character. Like you, mm. as a designer, you have to have a, a strong taste for what is good design, and that is hard to accelerate. And the only way to really do that is to do reps and to like expose yourself and to solve problems on multiple multiple times a day, multiple times a sprint. Um, so I would say the accelerating factor is to just expose yourself to, to product and to think about re-envisaging certain products. Like I, I used to do things like redesign Spotify and Wikipedia <laughs> and, and things like that in the past because it helped me go through the process so many times in so many different use cases. I also, like I highly recommend anybody to work in an agency i feel like every designer should work in an agency at some point in their career it's a very humbling experience because you have to pitch and sell your work on a day-to-day -day basis but you also get those reps so fast you mm. get to work on 100 different industries and like 100 different products within a year and it's just a great um exposure to that rapid kind of firing through of the process mm -hmm. yeah for sure uh a question from daria uh, could you shed some light on establishing a design culture within a team, especially um, where to begin when laying the foundation in a startup setting? Yeah. So I think the basis of a design culture is vulnerability. Like, uh, there is no design culture if everybody's off working in their own design cave. Mm -hmm. And the first thing to, to tackle is to build a sense of connection and vulnerability amongst people to be able to work out in the open to share work often and early to share work when it's super scrappy and it's not very well thought through and to be able to ask for help when you need help early on 
So a large part of the work that I do when I uh, either go into a new team or uh, start up a new team is to build relationships with people. Um, I'm a big fan of Radical Candor, um, the book by Kim Scott. Like Radical mm. Candor without that like authentic relationship is just being callous and cold and not very <laughs> nice as a person. So I think you have to spend a lot of time building that that muscle of building a like an empathetic team first. The design culture will come on top of that. Like as you start to have people wanting to work out in the open, wanting to pair design, wanting to share work often, you'll start to build the culture of people collaborating together and to be able to challenge each other on are we solving the problem? Are we applying the principles? Are we keeping up to the quality bar that is uh, the bar that we've collectively set together, not that I've set as one person. Like if we all work out in the open, the collective understanding of what quality looks like exists with, amongst the team rather than me being top down enforcing that quality bar. Mm. That's amazing. And I love this insight about vulnerability. Yeah. I think that's such an amazing answer. And as a uh, leader, you can do a lot to embody that as well. Like you can share your own work. Like if I'm working on a deck for a presentation, I'll share that for feedback with people who are often going to receive that presentation because I'm not the best presentation designer in the world. I'm not the best like narrative crafter, like there's tons that I can learn as well. You can embody that working out in the open as a leader by being vulnerable that you haven't got all the answers and you are willing to take feedback on anything that you're working on as well. Mm. Nice. On the back of this question, I actually want to ask you about the evolution of a design function as you were in Huddle, uh, which grew with you. Uh, so you saw it growing from like a small person, uh, a small startup to like a large scale organization. Yeah. Uh, so how did you see the design function evolving from like yeah, a small it, stage to scale up? Yes, in, in short, it goes from being in service to being strategic. Like a, mm. As a small startup, you're often in service and you are cranking out solutions and cranking out designs and then as you start to grow and you build in a cultural design thinking in the organization you start to become more strategic and you're able to um, be a part of the strategy and part of the longer term vision for the product rather than just um, I guess being a factory production line I hate saying that <laughs> like a, a production line for design um, is I guess like the starting point you grow into being more of a strategic partner for the other disciplines like the, it feels like the product management and engineering discipline are probably like half a decade ahead of uh of design <laughs> and like we're always playing catch up a little bit and we're probably the closest we've ever been now to being a true partner and in a lot of orgs we are a true partner i i feel i'm a true partner in intercom and i was in huddle as well and uh, towards the end because that strategic kind of um progression happened there as well in that company but no, i know a lot not a lot of uh, a lot of other orgs aren't at that stage yet hmm. makes sense so when do you feel this transition happens from being in service to being partners at what Great stage <laughs> there's, there's probably not a consistent stage from company to company i think it probably depends on the mode that the company's in uh, at some point, every company, I guess, hits the the S curves of like the growth progression like that. There's going to be a, come a point where there's like either a big funding round and you start to grow out the org and you start to have like a better ratio, of like engineering to design that helps in, in the first way. Often designs kind of the underemployed discipline at the start. There's 
your ratio is pretty high for engineering and, and design. You'll have maybe 10, 12 engineers where the idea would be like six, maybe. So you start to grow out the, the discipline. You start to have mm. a represent, representative at, at the proverbial table. Uh, you start to have some, a leader in that space who's able to advocate for the discipline and for how to work with the discipline. And I think there's those things appear at different times in different orgs at different at different kind of stages in their um their life cycle mm-hmm. um some it might be really early on depending on like the first hire the first design hire might be an ic it could be a leader at that time with a ton of experience like that often sets the tone for the future of that company often the design is done by the cpo at a startup like that's not an uncommon like one of the founders <laughs> it's not uncommon if that cpo is like brian chesky is a great example he was an industrial designer so he had a design background it was and designing airbnb is pretty different to designing physical products but he had the uh the design way of working background so uh, the culture of acceleration there happened really fast because of that and you just have to look now at like he's hired johnny ive like uh, uh, at the top like one of the probably most famous designers that is, has yeah. existed in in the on generation like uh, it's baked into that company mm-hmm. totally oh i love this question uh, what makes the difference between a good designer and the best designer? That's, that's a really great question. Uh, <laughs> I So I look for um, learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls when I'm hiring. I think the best designer is very aware that they need to keep growing. Mm-hmm. And that they, if you think that you've made it and you're a great designer, you're probably a year out of date already. If you know <laughs> that you need to keep learning, like look at the, what we talked about tonight about the like the speed that our industry is changing and the speed that the tools are changing, the emergence of new tools and the um, the amount that you just need to consume and continue to bake into your process. I think the best designer is the person that knows they're nowhere near finished. Nice. Yeah, I love it. Uh, what actually keeps you on your toes? Uh, what helps you to keep growing? Um, I've got a, a real passion for helping people. I think that's mm. uh, first and foremost. Like I, I do things outside of work as well as helping people. But I want to solve product for people and I want to help people grow their career. I guess what's keeping me on my toes, um, the fact that the industry is changing so much. There's, a, there's every single year, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of houses and new people flowing into industry, maybe not in the last year or so with the, the kind of downturn in tech, but on a, an upward cycle. There's tons of new people to learn from, but also to, I guess, to know that they're they're going to grow into your role at some point and you want to grow the the next uh, kind of leader. You should always be looking to replace yourself. I guess that's what keeps me on my toes and keeps me going. Awesome. Uh, we have another question from Victoria. How do you foster a collaborative environment within your team? Yeah, uh, so model it first and foremost. Like, um, mm-hmm. Be, be a collaborative partner yourself, like jump in and as a leader and, and collaborate with your team, uh, be available. I try and I have set periods on my calendar that has me available, like an office hours time, but um, also um, I attend every crit. Like I think our one-to-ones are sacred. I try and my reports will probably tell you differently, but I try and <laughs> uh, keep that time solid on my calendar every single week. It is a last resort to move that. Like I try and make myself available at all times. And I hope that everyone reports to me knows that uh, my digital door is always open. That's a horrible cliche. <laughs> but like uh, I'm, 
I'm available to them at every point in time if they want to collaborate with me, but I don't kind of force myself onto them at the same time. Like it, it's a pull rather than a push from me. Hmm. Awesome. Do you use any tactics like, I don't know, team brainstormings or team building exercises that usually work? Yeah, so we, we're actually having one of my teams are getting together in person next week for half yeah. a day and we're going to brainstorm together on a vision piece. So actually touching on a lot of the things that we talked about today, but we're also just going to go for dinner together and spend some time together and try and build that personal relationships. We're spread out quite a lot. So I'm remote. We've got people in London. We've got some other remote people in Europe and in Scotland and then people in Dublin where one of our big offices is. So we don't actually all get together all that frequently and we're trying to do that at least once a quarter now to get everybody together in person part of that is just getting to know each other a lot more and to to build those relationships it's a lot harder and it creates takes a lot more intentionality to do it like this for a camera mm -hmm. you, you don't see body language you don't see people's necessary responses to what you're saying in the same way so yeah you could accelerate those relationships through kind of in-person time that you, like a really dense time where you spend a lot of time together we'll spend seven eight hours together that day and we'll we'll work together but we'll also understand each other's perspectives and um i've also done things like the color energy kind of analysis with people like what understanding is that? The, the color wheel so you have like red people oh. that are like uh, full of energy you do the myers-briggs analysis as well where you mm. get your personality type um understanding what personality type everybody is in the team helps you understand what to, how to work with them i also have a user manual that i send to everybody that i work mm. with that is uh, i guess what i value what i um how i like to work uh what i expect from my team like what, what principles i live by i have that as a publicly open document that i'll send to anybody um that i work with either like a peer or part of my team or like a downline a couple levels below me uh, just so they're fully aware of kind of like what makes me tick and we've done that as an org like everybody's had kind of their own um read me type doc that is available that we've had in our home room <laughs> like our team room together like a one page from um how you like to work do you like asynchronous communication do you like to work synchronously on calls would you rather get on a call for 15 minutes and work through something or would you rather chat back and forth like are you high energy in the morning high energy in an afternoon try just trying to understand we're all humans at the end of the day we're all very different people so like trying to understand how each person works together awesome uh, i think it's an amazing tool and i feel like you uh, you have a lot of self-awareness uh and you're doing a lot of self-reflection what helps you do that do you have any tools or any you know uh, instruments or exercises that help you uh, kind of encourage that? Yeah, so I guess I said at the, the start of this, I work uh, with a woman called Julia Whitney, who's a leadership coach. She helps me with that self-reflection. Mm -hmm. I started working with Julia when I left Huddle and moved to, to Intercom because um, I too get imposter syndrome like everybody else. I was coming to Intercom and I uh, some of the people at Intercom are incredibly famous within their industries people like Paul Adams <laughs> and Dez and like I got imposter syndrome of working alongside those people and Julia helped me reflect on that and reflect on my successes and wins in the past and to work through that um my previous manager at Huddle uh, Kelsey was a great advocate I'm still really close with her and she she helped me reflect as well on um, where I've had success and where I can grow I think everybody should have like a my wife calls it my work therapist <laughs> like we should, we should 
Uh, we should all have our own person that we work with that's got an objective point of view. I guess they're less mm. subjective. They're not necessarily involved in the day-to-day, but they're able to kind of draw you out and give you an objective impression of how you're, how you're doing and where you could grow and how you could reflect better on the impact that you're having for your team. Yeah, awesome. Yes, Leander's a great place to find that person. Yeah, and Thomas the mentor. Yeah. <laughs> Leander as well. Yeah. Uh, you can reach out if you need this objective outside you as well. So if you have a question about the books that helped you in your work, maybe you could just create a list uh, and you could share it after the broadcast. So let's okay. just, just wrap it up on this question from Alona on the most important soft skills. So what are the most important soft skills that a product designer should invest into? Um, verbal and written communication, that hybrid world means that we aren't gonna spend as much time together. So investing the way that you communicate, being able to document your work and your thinking. I think in, uh, we invest in, come heavily in Loom. Like we have a lot of Loom videos mm-hmm. that go back and forth because we have people in different time zones, but it also helps you convey more than just the words on a page, I think, to people or the, uh, the frames in a Figma file, having the loom as commentary on top of that really helps. But to do that, you have to be a really strong communicator to be able to hone your narrative. Um, I would say relationship building is a, mm. another great soft skill. Like you should invest a ton of time up front in building relationships whenever you start to work with anybody new, whether that be like an engineer on your team or like a new design partner, you, you really need to invest in that relationship building. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for your amazing insight. Uh, we already received some thanks from the audience. Uh, so if you have some insight from this conversation, please share in comments. And we'll also share a link to Tom's profile on Meander and also the list of books that uh, he yes, will share will, with us. I will do that list. Yeah, thank you so much for tuning in today and uh, asking those great questions. And of course, thank you, Tom, uh, for your wisdom and for your insights. Thanks, Anna. See you I appreciate it. at the next interview. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. Bye.